0: Me to Acts chapter 5, and this morning we will hear verses 12 through 16. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were healed. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work And I pray, Son, that you would work by way of your Spirit to show the enduring significance. I pray, Lord, that we would be filled with faith and hope. In the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. In each era, God's people seem to deal with different kinds of things, though there, of course, are similarities. In this time, it seems that one of our greatest struggles is the maintenance of a true fellowship. How do we maintain unity, for example, with two services when you don't even see people anymore week after week? Or how do you maintain fellowship when you look around and you see people doing things that you don't think they should do with their mask or no mask? And these things are hitting us at an emotional level that is pretty serious to where sometimes over these kinds of things we're even willing to sever our relationships and think the most evil thoughts about somebody. This is an era where we will learn what it means to fellowship. When we were talking over the last few weeks, we defined the fellowship that we're seeking to live. It is a deep communion among the saints in faith, among the saints in hope, and among the saints in love. Last week, we deepened our understanding of fellowship through the figures of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, with an emphasis upon him being a Levite, and of Ananias and Sapphira, By looking at these characters, we saw that fellowship is sacred just as a temple offering and that it is serious and that God takes it seriously. It is helpful to know how seriously God takes our fellowship because, as we learned last week, there is extreme pressure pushing us away from each other. In every era, there is a kind of Pharaoh existing who seeks to take all of our time and our space so that we have no room left to work with our local bodies, no room left to be neighborly with the church with which we've joined and with whom God has made us members. And nevertheless, though, what we see is that in each era, God does what He always does, and He says this, Let my people go to every pharaoh of every generation. He maintains his marriage with his bride. Now that refrain, let my people go, you could actually summarize the sermon from last week in those words. You can almost summarize every passage with those words. But for this morning, let my people go continues in 12 through 16. In this healing, in the demon exorcism or unclean spirits, each of these are a kind of let my people go. What I want to do is, I want to make a few observations so that you can see, begin to see the meaning of these signs and these wonders. You know, this kind of passage can be quite puzzling. It's with puzzling passages like this where they can be abused. What is happening in the passage is obvious enough. I mean, you could repeat the passage to me. There's signs and wonders, and there's the removal of unclean spirits or demonic exorcisms. But I think the overarching question we have to ask is, what is the meaning? What is the significance of it? Some say they were just events that happened long ago to help those people to believe and increase in their faith. Obviously, we have to agree with that. That that is obviously one of the senses that this seeing these things to to see these signs and wonders was to help this group of people at this time who will come under an intense persecution to believe. Undoubtedly that is true. And it reminds you of Acts 2.22 also. It reminds you that what and how God the Father attested for Christ through signs and wonders. So too, God will attest for the authority of the apostles and signs and wonders. The crowds watching the apostles heal was definitely meant to attest that God was with them and has given them some kind of authority. But the question is still there. Is it only only for that moment? Is it only for that era and for that generation? Is that how God speaks to his people? Well, we know, even just common sense, that God speaks not only in the past but in all ages. But that becomes really the real question, the really real question. What is the enduring significance of these healings and the demonic, unclean spirits? We've seen people abuse this kind of thing today in certain in certain denominations. But what is it really meaning? What's really going on here? That's what I want to focus on. What is the enduring significance of twelve verses 12 through 16? Well, let's take a look at two clues. And out of each of the clues, there will be an article of faith. That you must apprehend by faith. And I'm calling upon you to do that. You know, we heard, um, I don't know if we were together. For some reason, I think we were. But there was an Ezekiel passage, I think it was last week, where God says that when I speak, you, you hear me like a song on the radio. You hear my words, but you don't do any of them. That's very similar to how we are with music. But I'm calling you to something different this morning, to hear the articles of faith and to apprehend them by faith, praying that God would integrate them into you. So what's the first sign or clue that we have here as to the the enduring significance of this passage for the church? Well, it's in verse 12. Take a look. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. The hands... The hands are the first clue. Later, it will be feet. The hands are a typical symbol of power. You can see this in John chapter 10, verse 29, for example. Jesus knows that God the Father does not have a body like men, like the children catechism says, and yet Jesus says this, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What does he mean? Obviously, there is a sense here, and it means his power. They cannot overpower what He has decreed and what He has executed. The idea is the strength and the power of the Father, and the same is present here with the apostles. But I want you to notice a further detail. Notice what it says about their hands. And through the hands of the apostles. Very important for us. Notice that the power, in other words, does not originate with the apostles. Their hands are not the source of the signs and the wonders. Luke records that it is through the apostles' hands, and he recorded Peter saying this in his sermon. It is not because of my righteousness that you see this man healed before you. It is not because of any power resident within me. The power that you see is a testimony to the resurrected Christ in his ascension. And that's what's going on here. Through the hands as an instrument, the power of Christ flows. And this lets us know something for every generation and for every era, which means your era and at this time. Here's the enduring significance truth and Article of Faith number one. The resurrected embodied Christ is working through his embodied church on earth. And we have got to believe that. That as he worked through the hands of the apostles, so too shall he work through all our hands and feet, all our hands and feet of his bride throughout every generation. The resurrected embodied Christ is working through his embodied church on earth. And that means you. That's the first clue that we get to the enduring significance of. But there's a second clue, and this clue comes from viewing verses 12 through 16 in the framework in which Jesus frames it. What is the enduring significance of these signs and wonders and demon possession and him casting out unclean spirits? How would his original audience have heard such a thing? Well, they would undoubtedly heard it in many ways, but this is definitely true for Mark chapter 3. Jesus frames it for us. He says in Mark 3, Jesus is healing and he's casting out demons. It was in the bulletin. We read it in the confessing Christ part. The scribes came down from Jerusalem and they questioned by what power or by what hand does Jesus do things? And they came up with a hypothesis and became, they they concluded something. They said, by the ruler of demons, Jesus casts out demons. Jesus is the hand of the devil. That Beelzebub works through him. And of course, Jesus will not tolerate them, so tolerate this. So he called them to himself and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. And that, my friends, is exactly how we should read our moment in 12 through 16. It is with that frame that we should see it and see enduring significance number two. The resurrected, embodied Christ is working through his embodied church on earth to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. Or in the words of Paul, for every generation, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Romans 16, 20. As the church, as Severn Run lives in her churchly existence, it is through her, it is through us, it is through all true churches across the globe, that Christ will overcome Satan on earth as in heaven. And here is the main question when we are confronted with such clear articles of faith and of hope. The question for you is, do you have faith and hope that this is true? And that's the toughie. Do you have faith and hope with the church that this is true? I think most these days would respond saying, I want to believe this, but it doesn't seem that way. It does not seem like there is some kind of power present for us to be victorious. I know, and I've been here long enough, that I've heard people sing, victory in Jesus. But when the song is over, it doesn't seem like that song is true. And as Joe was expressing just a moment ago, perhaps at least for him, it felt like that until he moved into repentance this past week. That there was no victory in Jesus. But I do want to believe it. I want to believe it, but But my belief seems contradicted by all of my experiences. Well, I think that This kind of thought creeps into us, and we are exposed as those who doubt for different reasons. But I wonder if our faith is faltering due to a loss of an ancient distinction. And I mean all the way back to the beginning of the history of of humankind. We'll see it brought out within the Western church in the medieval era. But basically, this is the way that folks will reason about this kind of situation where where they they are called upon from the pulpit to have faith that God is working through the church to crush the head of Satan, and yet their experience seems like they're losing every victory more and more, or every battle. And we reason like this, we say, I would be far, I've heard people say this. I would be far more confident in the victory of the kingdom if God still expressed in signs and wonders and demonic exorcisms. If I could see that as a regular daily part of my existence, then maybe things would be different for me and I could go ahead and exercise faith in what you're talking about, Jesse. And they go on to reason like this. And you will hear different denominations reason like this. God... Has the power to do whatever he wants to do. Do not put him in a box. He can do anything. And we say, oh, well, of course. I mean, who would not say that? God still has the power to do the things we see in verses 12 through 16. The fact that I never see him expressing his power that way makes me feel hopeless. It makes me feel hopeless. But with our ancient brothers and sisters of the past, perhaps we need to be careful about this kind of thinking. Maybe when we went down a wrong path somewhere after the first and second awakening early in our American history. The ancient distinction that a person would use in a situation like this in order to keep hope in the face of God's power and yet not seeing the power as you wish is a distinction between the absolute will of God and the ordained will of God. The absolute will of God and the ordained will of God. Absolutely. God has the power to continue with signs and wonders and demonic exorcisms and the ridding of unclean spirits and all of those things. If He wanted to, He could send a prophet to split the Chesapeake Bay in half and we could all walk through without paying a toll. Absolutely, God has absolute power. But that is hardly the question that is before any human being. The real question that is before us is, in all of the ways that God has absolute power and choice, what are the specific ways that he has chosen in his wisdom to show his power in each generation? That's the real question. It's not, does he have all power? It's, how will he choose to express it in his wisdom? And will he do so in different ways in different generations? And the answer is yes, and that's where the real wisdom comes from. Because then you can say, what does his power look like today? That's the real question. That's really what I'm declaring to you this morning and asking you to have faith in, to, to, to question, do you have faith, not in God's absolute power? I know that you do. I'm asking you, do you have faith in God's wisdom? in the exercise and choice of a particular path in the expression of his absolute power, his ordained will. Do we have faith in the what today of his will? Do we have faith in the when of his will? Do we have faith in the how of God's ordained will? That's the real question. Now, I see people... Messing up this distinction all the time and sometimes giving real false hope. For example, you could have somebody in your life that you find out has a terrible sickness. And someone will come to sit next to them, to strengthen them and comfort them. And they will say, do not worry. God can do anything. And in a sense, that can be appropriate. But here's the real question. That's true. God can do anything. But what's God going to do with you? That's what they're really wondering. Because God ordains sometimes for us to become sicker and sicker. And can we accept that will? Can we accept his ordained will? Can we accept a God who in one era chooses signs and wonders and demonic exorcisms and then this era does not choose that means any longer? In his wisdom, do we have the faith to accept not only his absolute will, but his ordained will? That's the main question. And out of that question, there flows another question for us then. And that's this. And we have to be particularly, we have to be particularly particular. How about that? How today for us has God ordained for us to crush Satan. What does it look like? I had a mom after the first service tell me what it looked like. It looked like catechizing her children. It looked like working with them in a godly fashion when they were having temper tantrums on the floor. That's what it looked like for her yesterday. And you need to become that particular in each and every one of your walks of life and us corporately as we seek to embrace this by faith that yes, God is going, we're going to be the hands of power by which Satan is crushed as we work corporately together in all of our individuality and our vocations. That's very exciting. If you want to think about it for us as a church, the question is, how today for us has God ordained to crush Satan? Well, I know this. It's going to be through our devotion to apostolic doctrine. And I know that it's going to be through our fellowship, our churchly existence, right? Through our prayer, through our worship right now. This is the work. This is where the power lies. And this can be very difficult for you to accept because God's power looks like foolishness and weakness to the world. But that's the point. Because everyone here has a life that looks like the life of Christ where you will carry your cross and you will look weak and you will look like a fool to this world, but God will shame the wise of this world and he will bring honor and glory to you for accepting the kind of power that he has chosen to display in his wisdom, his ordained will. This calls upon us as a congregation Do you have faith in God's wisdom to overcome Satan with the ministry of the word? That's what we mean by apostolic doctrine. Do you believe that God God will work through his word? Do you have faith that through our fellowship, God will overcome Satan by taking children of darkness and making them part of the fruitful body of Jesus Christ? That our fellowship together actually makes a difference that we are going to fight to keep meeting in person? Do you have faith that through prayer, God will overcome the strong man? That's pretty serious, Christian. That God in his ordained providence will use your prayer to overcome Satan? That's enduring significance. Do you have faith that through our worship, the bonds of the devil are broken? That in seeing the bread broken and the wine taken, that people will be brought to repentance? That we will be brought together more in unity and in hope and in love and in faith? I think we're wrestling with this. I told you that we're wrestling with fellowship. That's true. But I think we're wrestling with all of this. We're wrestling with can we have hope? Can we have hope when it looks like we are so weak? And the answer is, of course, yes, from this passage. But in our hearts, this is what our prayer must be. It must be this humble prayer. Lord, I do believe. But oh my God. Please help me and help my congregation in their unbelief. Please pray with me.